The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Today's Solutionist Thinker is Dr. Adriana Marais. She is a physicist, to be specific, a theoretical physicist, and she is head of innovation at SAP Africa. She is a volunteer to go on a one-way trip to Mars. Now, the company with which she was associated has gone bust, terribly ambitious, but she hasn't changed her ambition to become one of the very first people to set foot on Mars for a future that none of us can begin to contemplate. Dr. Adriana Marais. The only contribution we can make as humans then, given that everything else is outsourced to, to machines, is to think beyond the current framework. And that is asking big questions, that is you know, looking at the current status quo and saying, do things need to be this way? Can they be otherwise? And I think this is a capability, that leap of imagination that you cannot code into a machine, at least not currently. So this is going to be our contribution. Having a broad perspective, asking the big questions and dedicating our lives to, to these ideas that are bigger than us. I'm Bruce Whitfield and you're listening to RMB Solutionist Thinking. What's so wrong with the world, Adriana Maria, that you wanted to stop so that you can get off? Well, for a problem solver, I think we're living in an ideal time because uh, solutionist thinking is just what we need and we are certainly surrounded by challenges. Um, the kind of out-of-the-box thinking that I think, uh, to use a cliched phrase, for, <laughs> uh, is really what we're in need of. And I suspect that staying on the planet is not going to lead to the kind of leaps of imagination that is necessary to, to really emerge successful out of this era which we're in the midst of. But from a little girl, I don't know, age five, six, ten, how old were you when somebody said to you, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to go to space. I mean, it's a long-held ambition that you've had. Yeah, at about age four or five, I remember sharing this weird moment of imagination I had. I said, if there was a rocket that could only go one way and I heard about it on the radio, I would volunteer to get in that rocket to go look for new planets. So I would have a notepad and a pencil and a little window that I would look through in the rocket and I'd shoot off into space and presumably pass a few planets by and then pick one and live on it and call others to follow. This was what I shared with my friends. They had absolutely no clue what I was talking about. I remember Sarah and Sarah, my two friends at the time, uh, they you know wrinkled their noses and scooted off uh, and I decided to myself right then and there that that would be what I would do. So imagine my surprise um, when I read the the newspaper headline calling for volunteers for a one-way trip to Mars in 2013, 2012. Um, And yeah, my mother's dug out a photo of my science project at age 14, which I must admit I'd completely forgotten about. And she's like, look, your talk hasn't even changed much because the topics (laughs) in the project are the same. Power, air, water, food, city life. How will we live on Mars? So clearly I've been thinking about living on another planet. Turns out Mars in particular for quite a while. Um, And I think we're lucky enough to be living in the era with this revitalization of space exploration on many fronts, uh, from China to UAE to the US, um, also private sort of players coming into partner with government. And this is it, I believe, for humanity. We are going to witness our our species going multi-planetary in our lifetimes. You may go, you may not go. You were on a shortlist of 100. The Mars One Project has stuttered. The business underpinning the Mars One project has declared bankruptcy. Um, they may get some funding. They may not get some funding. You may be on a one-way spaceship. What happens if it never happens for you? So, I mean, the question we should really be asking uh 
is who, who's building the transport system to get there. That's obviously the first hurdle. Leaving Earth, traveling well, six months to question. Mars. Let's try this. What happens if it doesn't happen for you? Do oh, you that's just- a very real possibility. But then mm. I assume that some of the many children I've talked to over the last five years will be the ones to go. And mm. I hope I'm alive to see it. Um, what is important is that we get there as a species. Or it's not important whether I'm one of them, although I'll do my damnedest to get on that <laughs> you, you are a scientist. I mean, <laughs> you understand the complexity of the project and the process. I mean, We've sent un, unmanned vessels and vehicles. The, the Mars rover died recently. Um, we, we have had a presence as humanity on Mars. It's harsh. It's unforgiving. It's difficult. Many of the vehicles that have gone there have not made it onto the surface of the planet. It's hard. And that's why, as you alluded to a moment ago, whoever is going to manufacture these vehicles and whoever is going to do the sums is absolutely critical. So the yeah, the players to watch here really are, are Elon Musk and the team at SpaceX because they're the only company investing in building a transport system to get to Mars. That was written in the aims of the company established in 2002. SpaceX endeavored to get the first crewed missions to Mars. So 2022, for those who want dates, although in the game of space exploration, any schedule you have is always subject to change when things go wrong because, of course, this is really at the forefront of our capabilities. So if all goes to plan in 2022, SpaceX will launch uh, an uncrewed architecture that would be capable of taking crew to Mars to demonstrate that they can land uh, a mission big enough to support crew on the surface of Mars. If that succeeds in 2022, then really the first crews getting on that same um, architecture before 2030 is, is not unrealistic at all. Then the big question is, how is SpaceX going to allocate seats? Because every astronaut I've talked to, including Mikhail Koryenko, who spent one year in the space station, numerous other astronauts, of course, you know, humanity, heroes of humanity, um, these people laughed and said all the best and no way no way would they consider doing such a thing as going to Mars on what's probably a one-way trip because we would be the people developing and testing the return. Um, so I'm not sure that government astronauts um, are going to be the crew for this kind of mission. So where's the crew going to come from? This is the big question. We know one person is terribly keen <laughs> to be on that ship. Um, what is the motivation for you? What makes you think that this is a jolly good idea? Adriana Marais, resident of planet Earth, thinks it's a good idea to go one way to Mars. For most people, it's a wonderful dream, but in reality, they could never face it. We are humans. What is our unique you know, value proposition, let's say, on this planet? Well, we've got a lot of things that we don't do perfectly, but our capability to create knowledge, I think, is what uniquely defines us. Whether it's the storytelling of you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, whether it's the art, whether it's the technology eventually now in, with which we store this information and communicate this information, culminating in the internet, basically. Living on Earth, I can contribute to this knowledge, but living on Mars, I can contribute to it exponentially more because the level of unknown factors that we will face living on Mars will mean that I can create knowledge at a rate that would not be possible in the known environment, the known busy, crowded environment that is Earth. So I'm basically just making sure that in my limited lifetime as a human in the solar system, let's say, and let's not be limited to a single planet, how am I going to contribute the most to the unique capabilities that I have as a human? And that's as a researcher creating knowledge um, from a new world where every question that one asks uh, is a mountain of new knowledge and trying to try answer it. Take me through the mechanics. Let's say, for example, tomorrow is blast off day. What happens? You go to either Cape Canaveral, for argument's sake, um, you, you strap yourself in and blast off. What happens after that? 
So, so curiosity and research are the one of the reasons, as I just outlined now. But the second one is really on resource management because uh, once you've survived through launch and landing, which are the two sort of critical statistically. What is that time risky. frame between launch and landing? Currently six months. So the Curiosity rover did a six-month journey. Um, Insight, which landed last year, was also six months, six to seven months. Uh Elon, of course, proposes to reduce this um, with the BFR. Um, we're looking at uh, less than a handful of months, I believe three to four. Um, the, the trade-off here is really the landing gear. So you, you need to sort of have sophisticated landing gear in order to, to slow yourself down and not to, you know, um, not to die on landing, but to rather <laughs> touch down. Um, so that's the trade-off. But the more sophisticated the landing gear, the faster you can go. So let's say three or four months, maybe in 10 years. Once we get there, it's all about resource management as well as, uh, you know, human resource management, let's say. So the unity and the team spirit is equally as crucial as the way that you manage your scarce resources to survive. And it's an extraordinary idea that, let's say, you took six months to get there. You'd be in a terribly confined space. You'd be very intimate space. And there'd be people that you might might not like. You will have a shared goal and a shared mission. But if you have a fallout up there... There weren't many places to hide. So hence my martial arts career <laughs> more than a decade. I mean, I mean, you are, a lot of people would say, yes, Adriana, this is very nice, a lovely hobby. You've got a proper job. You are head of innovation for SAP Africa. So you travel to the African continent, you meet fabulous people, and you're solving human problems on earth. It's a wonderful speaking gig for you on the side, and you're living out your childhood fantasy. But I think one way of showing your commitment is next year, you're packing your bags, and you're doing a, can we call it a dry run? I suppose it is quite dry in Antarctica. You're going to go and spend a whole year in the barren wasteland or what I perceive to be the barren wasteland of Antarctica. Is that the warm up, so to speak? Yeah, that's the plan. So, I mean, um, I felt like it was really not in my character to be talking to audiences and in general chats with people saying, oh, we're still waiting for the next announcement by Mars One. So why not put together our own training mission? Um in fact, the research around the social aspects, the community spirit, the interaction between people is probably the biggest gap in the research for surviving Mars. The technology, you know, we can look at what exists in the space station. We can look at how things operate there in that extreme environment, obviously, of space. Um, but basically how the technology performs in relation to the people running their science projects there is something that as South Africans we have a unique opportunity for. So we can look at the UAE plans to build a Mars science city in the Emirati Desert, $150 million, um, a massive uh, project where you know, you'll have youth coming through to, to look at what's going on there. You'll have people living there, people doing developing technologies um, like 3D printing components for the habitat from the sand. Fantastic. But uh, I don't imagine pitching that to South African government and getting the go ahead. So how can we contribute as, as South Africans, um, do we need to leave South Africa to participate in space, as Elon Musk did? Uh, which and he's now revolutionised the American space program. They'll be launching crew again in partnership mm. with SpaceX from this year. So, does it take leaving South Africa to have South Africa, you know, play a meaningful role in terms of the training of crew? And our answer was no. We have access to Antarctica every year. Crews spend a winter there, uh, holding down the fort, doing the science at um, DST, and uh, the others run projects there. Sansa as well, of course, is involved. Can we join them and can we run this as an experiment? So just like the Shackleton mission and the documentary on YouTube has fantastic original footage by the National Geographic crew person that accompanied them uh, unsuccessfully to Antarctica back in 1914, uh, we plan to get production companies on board because, you know, reality TV, fun, 
can we add an educational angle to the reality TV? Can we add an excitement angle in terms of isolated, confined and extreme environments? And can we show the science that's so crucial for solving the challenges on Earth and beyond um, uh, in this environment? So that's that's an outline of our plan for 2020 winter. That's a good test as to whether or not the team, you have got the metal for something even more extreme, and that is to go out of this hemisphere. Yeah, so we'll hopefully have uh, 12 carefully screened and selected volunteers, each with a detailed project proposal of what they would do there because, in fact, it's the boredom often that, that gets to you rather than the cold. Um, so we'll all have tasks which we'll have to detail and schedule in, in detail, of, obviously, of course, for the resources that we'd require. But um, resource management, I think, is something extremely important to our sustainability on Earth, but a topic that maybe doesn't get enough direct attention. It's, Completely. I mean, um, we are denuding the planet. We're utilizing fossil fuels hand over fist. South Africa is a culprit in terms of coal extraction, burning and the pollution of the planet. We're doing our very best to make it so dreadful for you that you feel obliged to go. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think we've been living under the illusion of infinite resources for mm. quite a long time. You know, countries that had colonies, for example, literally were living in a scenario which looked very much like infinite resources, uh, an infinite supply of stuff coming from outside. Well, guess what, guys? We're still living on the same planet Earth. It's got a finite amount of resources. And uh, that illusion of, of development just happening at a, you know, unstoppable rate and, uh, you know, this cannot continue indefinitely. So we need to become more more efficient in our resource uh, utilization. We need better re resource management schemes uh, because our population is increasing, our resources are staying the same. And miniaturization and optimization are, are not going to be enough. We actually need to be much more broad in our thinking. And getting off the planet is maybe not going to solve all problems in one foul swoop, but it will provide us with a perspective shift that I think we're in desperate need of. I mean, space travel generally over the last 50, 60 years has revolutionized the way we live on Earth. Many of inventions made for space, many of the, the, the thought processes of getting people to space have defined so much of what happens on Earth. I mean, it's advanced technology. Humanity has improved as a result of, of space and space exploration. What do you see this universe looking like 50 years from now? I mean, I hope it's, uh, you know, UN sustainability goal number one, eradicate poverty. I mean, we need to get that right. Otherwise, the future that we're going to arrive at is not going to be one that we can ever be proud of. Um, I think the resource management then needs to come first so that we can first alleviate poverty to really unlock the potential of, of 7 billion plus and counting people. 10 by 2050. Yeah. Sure, maybe more. Um, so... That's that's really priority number one and also goal number one. Good. Let's assume we've eradicated poverty and everybody has enough food, water, air, data, um, access to technology, etc. Uh, what next? And I think this is these are similar questions that we're grappling with with this whole discussion around the fourth industrial revolution. And I think uh, any any technology that we've developed will always think within the framework in which we've developed it. So the only contribution we can make as humans then, given that everything else is outsourced to, to machines, is to think beyond the current framework. Um, and that that is asking big questions. That is, you know, looking at the current status quo and saying, do things need to be this way? Can they be otherwise? And I think this is a capability, that leap of imagination um, that you cannot code into a machine, at least not currently. So this is going to be our contribution, having a broad perspective, asking the big questions and dedicating our lives to, to these ideas that are bigger than us. But will going to Mars 50, 100 years from now be like jumping on a plane at O.R. Tambo and ending up at Heathrow tomorrow morning? Funny, that's what a, a 
10-year-old at the time said to me when I was in Dar es Salaam giving a talk five years ago, and she recently emailed me to say she's going to the US to study aeronautical engineering as a result of hearing my talk. And she said exactly that. She wrote me a letter as I arrived in Dar. She'd read my um, profile and written me a letter and said, we believe you, we as the children understand that one day going from Earth to Mars will be no different than going from Dar to New York. Mm. And for many Tanzanians, this sounds uh, like a crazy dream, you know, taking a return flight to New York. But uh, us thinking now of Mars, um, this I believe in 100 years, uh, I'm not sure what the impossible dream of, of 2100 will be. That's an interesting but, question. But we can't, <laughs> I mean, there's a future that we can't imagine. We can dream it, we can fantasize about it. But what we do know is that science advances humanity perpetually through generations, whether it was dealing with the plague and cholera epidemics and dealing with population control through 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 birth control mechanisms through the 60s and 70s and giving people personal freedoms. Science has advanced humanity. And this is science's goal now, whether we end up colonizing Mars or simply we learn tricks along the way to do Earth better, humanity should advance. Yeah, I think I think also we need to leave Earth alone. So looking at the planets in the solar system, Earth is teeming with life. And perhaps in the future, we'd just protect Earth and leave it at that. You become like the Kruger Park yeah, of the exactly. universe. People it's got can a, go on holiday there. <laughs> you can come visit and have a nice time, yes. Um, but back to another idea I had just now, and I wanted to then ask you do, you, do you think we've had any significant technological inventions since the mobile phone, the personal computer, and the internet? Because I've been thinking about that lately, and besides the quantum computer, which is on the radar and not yet developed. I don't think we have. I mean, and these all emerged from the Apollo era. So this is an answer to your question: What will you know, expanding our our place in the solar system beyond Earth do? Well, we don't know because before the internet, the personal computer, and the phone, we didn't imagine that these technologies would play such a crucial role in our lives. I mean, Neil Armstrong, when he took the the step, went this is one small step for man, or one giant leap for mankind, um, in 1969, 11th of July, 1960. It was July, yeah. Yeah, it was July 69. I mean, it was terribly impressive. He had 13 seconds or something or seven seconds of fuel left before he crashed and burned on the surface of, of the moon. But it opened an era that 50 years before seemed impossible. And now we're sitting 50 years later, and what have we done with ourselves? I mean, developments in automation and robotics, I think, have been impressive, and this uh, needs to accompany crewed missions. So we couldn't have you know, kept exploring beyond the moon successfully, I think, with people um, with the kind of technology that existed in the 60s. So that was a kind of a miraculous <laughs> success, mm-hmm. let's say, given the level of computing power, et cetera. So now, now we have the capability to monitor systems, monitor systems remotely. I mean, I was just at IoT Next this morning, uh, looking at the fantastic uh, South African-based IoT systems and the global um, interactions that they're having. These, this kind of capability to monitor your, your resource consumption and also the functionality of your systems. Great for Earth in terms of efficiency, but absolutely crucial for, for systems that are far away from breathable air, you know, other humans that you can talk to, <laughs> etc. Does humanity's future depend on us leaving planet Earth? There's certainly a lot of people who think so. I mean, I think looking at business, looking at even science, you know, it's like publish or die, innovate or die, all of these <laughs> catchphrases are coming through because I think there's only so much to such an extent that we can optimize and miniaturize um, in terms of you know all of the devices that 7 and 8 billion people need um, we are literally going to run out of resources on earth even if we manage to recycle at an optimum rate I don't think this planet can support our, our goals for the future in terms of the way we have been living so either we need to drastically rethink the standard of living that we're going to have access to if we're going to stay on the planet or we can you know keep expanding in terms of ideas and 
knowledge and capabilities um, and have access to the whole asteroid belt, in which case we would never run out of metals. Um, we could build as many touchscreens as we wanted because uh, indium and iridium are two you know, elements starting with an I, both of which are rare and which we may actually run out of in total, even if we recycle. So going forward, we need to look at a, a broader resource base um, mining the moon, I'm extremely opposed to, by the way. But I think the asteroids are pieces of rock that we can pluck out of vacuum, um, which is the vacuum of space, which would be easier than digging six kilometer deep holes. But you Earth. think you <laughs> think stopping a spacecraft, which has been hurtling through space for three months in time for you not to crash and burn on the surface of Mars is a problem. Then trying to stop an asteroid from... No, you match its velocity, you encapsulate it, uh-huh. and you, gotcha. you in-situ resource extraction using gas. So we have I'm so glad you've explained it. <laughs> I'm going to go away and think about that and re-listen to it a hundred times. Dr. Adriana Marais, she is a scientist, she is a thinker, she's a solutionist thinker, looking beyond the realms of what we understand today to be Earth's limits and our limits as humanity and looking to a future that very few dare dream about. Today's R&B solutionist thinker, Dr. Adriana Moret. R&B solutionist thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.